Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 83 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Last week, Pat and I covered one case, as there was not much to pick from, but today we've picked three cases, all time sensitive. Two of them are in the second district of Illinois, and so as we often talk about, second district often releases opinions almost as soon as they hear the case. And we have a Seventh Circuit case that involves CAFA, which we'll talk about, and so we push some other cases to future episodes. The first case we'll talk about today is LE64 Inc. versus Society Insurance, addressing a certification of a class in questions of COVID-19 contamination in the Illinois 2nd District. The second case is Donna Schutte versus Siox Cy- Health LLC, an interesting Seventh Circuit CAFA case, uh, Class Action Fairness Act for Judge Easterbrook. Uh, take a drink if, if Easterbrook's on your card. The third case is Walker versus Quality Craft Inc., a second district contract case involving insurance. With that, let's turn to our first case. The Illinois Appellate Court Second District heard argument last week following certification of a class in LE64 Inc. versus Society Insurance for claims of COVID 19 contamination. Like has been seen in the few cases where contamination coverage is at issue in the COVID 19 context. The argument is different from the dispute over the meaning of direct physical loss or damage to and the virus exclusion, but rather focuses on whether the shutdown was a result of contamination at the insured's premises, whether the shutdown order has the effect of law, as the Seventh Circuit has found, and whether the language of the policy prohibit access to requires all access to the property to be forbidden, and if a limitation on access is sufficient to satisfy triggering the coverage under the provision at issue. Uh, A lot of coverage issues here, Pat, but also procedural issues. Why don't you tell us about this oral argument? Thanks, Dan. And so I want to start with the procedural issues because I I didn't post about those when I posted about the case, but they're really, I had to listen to the argument again to get get a flavor of what happened here. So here's what I think happened. And Dan, you correct me if I'm wrong. I will. The plaintiff files a putative class action, complaint for class action, for one bar representing over 3,000 bars and restaurants across Illinois, that all of whom had policies written by society insurance. They didn't issue any discovery. They didn't file a motion for class certification. The trial court, in uh, denying motion to dismiss or uh, filed by the insurer, and in granting a motion for judgment on the pleadings to the insured, Sua sponte, and in the absence of a motion for class certification, found a class. So the uh, the carrier appealed. Now, how did they appeal? Well, they filed a motion for 304A language, which we've talked about. That's where it eliminates some of the claims, but not all the claims, or some of the parties, but not all of the parties. And the court granted that, but that was opposed by the plaintiff insured who said, 
uh, it was more properly an appeal under Supreme Court Rule 306A8, which is an appeal from class certification. And so you have this very odd situation. I've never heard of a trial court granting a motion for class certification in the absence of a hearing, in the absence of a motion, in the absence of any discovery, nothing. I, 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 I would like to know more because this doesn't seem, something's missing here, but maybe it was as bizarre as it was described. Um, it but why bizarre. does it matter? I'm sorry, Dan? It seemed bizarre. Yeah, there was, it didn't seem like there was a good explanation of what, what happened at the lower court. That's right. And so what happened here, so why do they care about whether it's under 304A or under 306A8? And the answer is, you've heard us say it before, the standard of review. So if they're appealing the grant of the motion for judgment on the pleadings, then it's a de novo standard of review. If, however, they're appealing the class certification, which they did, but not under 306A8, then it's an abuse of discretion standard. Now, if the circumstances are as we understand them, and maybe they're not, but if they are as we understand them, no discovery, no motion, no hearing, I have a hard time believing it's not an abuse of discretion, if that's in fact what happened. I have my doubts as to whether that's what happened, but if that's what happened, that seems to me like a, an abuse of discretion, especially in a circumstance where Ali 64 did not plead that the virus was on their premises, which brings us to the merits of the case. Now, there was an argument here, I think it was Justice Brennan who brought it up, and to counsel for the appellee, the insured here, aren't you a stop from arguing we can't reach the merits? Uh, because that's what you argued below. And he says, and I'll read from your opposition papers to the 304A language. Um, and, you know, that went around for a little bit. But the, the, uh, the contamination issue, so in order to have contamination, so this is not, this is business interruption under a specific contamination writer to the policy. It is not from the general property portion of the policy. Right. And so this is this has to do with contamination at your premises that leads to an order shutting you down. Now, uh, there's an argument over whether, now the, the insured argues that it doesn't actually have to be at their premises, which is a little bizarre considering the language, but they insist that it doesn't have to be, that it's broad enough that if it's anywhere in the world and you get shut down because it's anywhere in the world, that that, fall, that uh, qualifies as contamination coverage. And it doesn't matter if it's on the, the surfaces or in the air, that's enough to get you this contamination coverage, which involves $5,000 of cleaning coverage and then, some, uh, and then business interruption coverage for however long. Uh, there's also this question about whether it's a law. Now, in the Seventh Circuit Bradley case that held that the orders were law, that was in the context of a civil, uh, a civil action exclusion, right. not a contamination coverage. So they're somewhat different, same language, different, different purpose within the framework of the policy. Uh, now, it seems to me that an exclusion is read more narrowly and against the insurer than would a coverage grant under a particular writer. Um, and so I think that actually might that distinction might actually favor the insurer over the insured. But you know I've been surprised before. 
But the, the, the question is, is this order that is entered in under, you know, with legal authority under the Emergency Act uh, by the governor, is it, is that, does it have the force of law? Well, if you violate it, they either find you or put you in jail. So I'm going to go with that sure looks like a law to me. Uh, right. It may not have passed through the General Assembly, but it was with the with the authority granted by the General Assembly. And if the General Assembly wanted to jerk the uh, the reins on the governor, if, if they had wanted to do that, which they obviously weren't doing here, uh, they could have done that. They said, nope, you've exceeded your authority. We're taking it back. They surely could have done that. So I have a hard time believing this isn't a law, and the justices seem to not be buying that. But then the question becomes, Is it was it because of something on your premises and you didn't even plead it, which leads to the question of, well, how can you have a class when you have some folks that could allege that it was actually on their premises? And the closest that Alley 64 got was there was a high probability that it was on their premises. As one justice put it, that's as far as you would go. Uh, you wouldn't actually plead that it was there. Um, so it's a, it's a bit different of a case from the other, uh, the more usual uh, direct physical loss or damage to property type cases. It's a different coverage, and it's a class action and a certified one under these what seem to be rather unusual circumstances. Uh, Dan, uh, what, what are your thoughts? No, I agree with you, Pat. It's, uh, again, either something's missing here or uh, very bizarre that sua sponte, it seems the trial court certified the class as as was argued, you know, typically you would have hearings, like you said, and would, would have going to the merits, right? You can't get you have discovery, right? Because, you know, especially when there's a lead plaintiff like here, if, if they don't have a case, then how can they be a class rep and all the other stuff? So, well, yeah, you've got to show, you've got to show the four factors, numerosity, typicality, predominance, you know, you've right. got to show the factors, right? And how can you do that in the absence of discovery and numer you know, how do you show there's enough? I don't know where they came up with this number of 3000, but they haven't. Yeah. Um, so I, I so, don't know. So, yeah, it's just a, an interesting case. And, you know, I, I think we'll see, see see how the court handles this, you know, if they address the procedural or the substance or both, um, you know. Not one argument that, argument. You know, one argument that the insurer made, they got asked, what relief do you want on rebuttal? What do you want from us? And he's like, well, I want you to reverse and I want you to enter judgment for me under Rule 366, which you have the power to do. And if they find that it wasn't within the coverage, that's exactly what they could do is just enter judgment. Um, the other thing that was interesting is that there was this distinction that the insured made, the appellee made, about being motions to dismiss under 615 and motions for judgment on the pleadings. What rule is judgment on pleadings in, in Illinois? It's in rule 615. <laughs> <laughs> the typical motion to dismiss... Yeah is under 615B, a motion for judgment on the pleadings, which can be brought any time, as the rule says, is 615E. So I, I'm not sure I understand the distinction necessarily because yeah, maybe, in, maybe, in that, in that maybe, circumstance. Maybe they were leaving out the, the subparts. Maybe that's... Well, uh, I, but again... It was, it was, yeah, it seemed odd, though, the, the argument. I just like they're, they're, you're finding a judgment on the pleadings. That's what a six, whether it's a dismissal... Right with prejudice saying you, you can never plead facts or saying, okay, we have the answer. We have the complaint. You lose right. uh, judgment entered. They're the same kind of thing. It's a question of judgment on pleading or judgment on pleadings. Uh, that's uh, and there's only a couple things that are pleadings in Illinois complaints, answers, counterclaims. That's right. it. 
Right. Nothing. Briefs are not pleadings. Right. They are papers, uh, but not pleadings. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Shuti versus Syox, uh, which is a class action fairness act case. We're back for segment two of episode 83 of the Podium and Panel podcast to discuss Shuti versus Syox. Syox is C-I-O-X. The, the irony of a defendant arguing for increased damages and the plaintiff arguing for lower potential damages is what you get when the parties are fighting over whether a case should remain in federal court or be remanded to state court. That's the position of the parties before the Seventh Circuit in Shuti versus Syox Health LLC. At issue is what is a sufficient showing that the $5 million amount in controversy threshold of the Class Action Fairness Act applies, and does the plaintiff or the defendant have the burden of making that showing? In addition, the court will address whether the local controversy exception of CAFA applies to require remand to the Wisconsin State Court. And I, we were going to play a portion of the argument. It goes on for a long time, this discussion between the judges and counsel for the appellee uh, on this, I'm sorry, appellant on this question. And it's just too long because it goes on and on and on and on for eight or 10 minutes. And uh, let's just say it was a rough ride. But uh, if you're interested in the issue, you should listen to it. So the plaintiff brought a putative class action on behalf of allegedly thousands of plaintiffs for alleged charges for electronic medical records in violation of Wisconsin law that forbids charging for electronic medical records. The only charge alleged in the complaint is for $61 to the putative class representative. In response, the defendant contended there were 700,000 class members. They want to blow that class up as big as they can. Right. Getting back to the irony. And not all in Wisconsin, as we'll talk about. What's that? Not all in Wisconsin, but... Yeah. That there were statutory damages (laughs) of $25,000 per violation. And that the plaintiffs could seek... Exemplary damages, punitive. Hit us with punitive damages too. While you're at it, count that into the fight to get to the five million. You won't find a defendant arguing for that very often. But there he is. He really wants to be in federal court. Dan, uh, tell us about the oral argument, please. Thanks, Pat. And uh, as as we've talked about on this show on other instances uh, with with uh, BIPA and with other uh, statutory things like this, as we've talked on episode about- two. The, yep. clear, the Clearview case, the that's Clearview exactly case. the argument. That was also a CAFA appeal, which it is was. why this goes so quickly. It, it was, and, and it's, uh, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting. And, and the appellant uh, opened with, with, with the line uh, talking about uh, there's two ways to reverse. There's an easy way and slightly less easy way, but both ways are correct. Um, the, uh, 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 the appellant, and then they, they opened with this whole uh, – a question of, of the 700,000 and, and over a period between 2015 and 2021, and then a, a, and an average of 200,000 and going back and forth, like you said, there's these punitive damages. There's a law in Wisconsin that says you cannot charge for any uh, printing of records, electronic, et cetera. And so uh, a big fight ensued. Uh, a step back, you know, for, for those listeners that might not be familiar with the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005, this uh, expanded in some way federal subject matter jurisdiction over many of these large class action lawsuits and mass actions taken in the United States. Um, and it, it, it 
permits federal courts to preside in the reason path that, that the, this debate about what's included in the damages, as you mentioned, $61 and change was the only actual damages claimed by the, uh, by the, the plaintiff. Um, you have to have uh, uh, certain class actions in diversity jurisdiction under CAFA. The aggregate amount in controversy has to exceed $5 million. You have to have at least 100 plaintiffs, and there's some other requirements. Um, Justice uh, 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 Hamilton, right out of the gate, was asking the appellant a lot of questions, uh, to, to your point, some about this local uh, uh, rule. Um, the 700,000 uh, people that are potentially impacted by this, it's unclear how many of those are actually in Wisconsin. Um, um, that th This is a nationwide putative class action. Um, and it's interesting, as an aside, you and I have talked uh, on this show uh, pretty extensively. I have trouble distinguishing between Judge Hamilton and Judge Easterbrook's voice. And I, I thought it was Judge Easterbrook for a while then when he talked about being on the district court and, and looking at these cases. Uh, then then it, I realized that uh, it was, in fact, uh, 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 Judge Hamilton. Um, one of the things that, that happens in these CAFA cases as well is there has to be uh, minimal diversity. Uh, one plaintiff class member has to be diverse from at least one defendant. And again, the reason for this is that th this was designed to really, the, the, the purpose of CAFA when it was passed in 2005 was to uh, put an end just as much as possible, I, I, I think you would agree, Pat, to uh, forum shopping and trying to find the best jurisdiction possible for uh, these these class actions like this one where you know, um, uh, people would, would, would shop uh, the, the, and, and look around. So, um, um, the <laughs> uh, Judge Hamilton at one time said, are you arguing your own allegations about damages should not be taken seriously? So again, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, lawsuit that was filed, uh, the allegations were right. This uh, all these punitive damages, potentialities, and other things. And again, it's so uh, from, from where I sit, it's so bizarre to listen to arguments where people are fighting and trying to downplay damages when you're plaintiff, and then upgrade damages when you're the defendant. Um, gets you into some sticky situations probably down the down the line, right? Because if you win on your arguments, uh, then you have to come back and somehow convince the court that you're in now that nah we didn't mean that that, that damages were higher you we didn't we're not actually subject to punitive damages we didn't actually do this willfully right theoretically we were just arguing for the sake of things um, um, and, and so uh, as you mentioned there's a there, there's a lot of uh, discussion about this local localized rule um, and and uh, as you said, it did not go well. It kept getting worse and worse um, and more and more uh, involved uh, because, again, we're looking at uh, trying to figure out here uh, how many people are affected by this, this law um, and then how do you even assess damages. Uh, Hamilton at one time um, uh, talked about the anti-redundancy uh, of this law. And, and well, interpret interpretation. Interpretation. Instead, it seems to be anti-redundant uh, anti on steroids. Um, 
these and he said weakest empirical foundation sometimes redundancies are put in for legal matters um, the uh, um, uh, and again the, 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 this the, this uh, law has to do with with uh, uh, obtaining the medical records and Wisconsin for whatever reason said that under HIPAA uh, you're not permitted to charge recipients for uh, copies of their medical records with some exceptions so yeah, because I'm sure that's not going to lead to expenses being raised in other places because it, because everyone knows electronic medical records are just maintained and produced for free. Right. Uh, right. Said no one ever who's been ever. involved in the process. You know, it was uh, interesting. I mean, what's, what's so interesting with this law, and I, I didn't look at the underlying law uh, preparing for this. I listened to your argument, but but the punitive damages in this, I mean, $25,000 per violation, that's pretty 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 damn steep in these various various statutory regimes we've talked about on this show that's about the highest i've i can think of where uh for intentional conduct even you know even under bip it's what five thousand dollars per violation so yeah it's, it's pretty it's pretty steep. uh yeah pretty they severe. really don't want you to do that no. No. <laughs> that seems to be an it, an easy thing not to do but even still um it, it's you know don't send a bill but that said, uh, if you do it, I mean, really, I, I, it's 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 quite the quite the circumstance, right, right. Um, so yeah, we'll. It, I can't wait to hear what the court has to say about this one when it comes out. It's it would it's if you're interested at all in the topic, I, I commend the argument to you because it is uh, it's a barn burner. So it is much as one is. of these things can be. And and I think at one point, I think it was Hamilton as well asked about whether this this was a good candidate for for MDL litigation. Because there's, so, yeah. there's, there's, just, there's another like class, at least around. one in Montana, it seems. Right. So, so with that, we'll take our next break and come back with our third case. Uh, we'll be back on the other side. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three, and we're going to cover our third case today, Walker. In this case, questions include, can a client alter a contract that allows a contractor doing work to be funded by insurance and which gives the contractor the authority to en endorse checks from the insurer, unilaterally modify that provision of contract and state a claim for breach of the Consumer Fraud Act when a dispute arises about the work performed. What evidence is necessary to show that gift cards charged to the client's account were used to bribe inspectors to waive the final inspection? What pleading, if any, is necessary to allege this scheme and does the defendant waive the objection to the absence of such pleading? What evidence is needed to prove that a door installed by the contractor meets with the specifications of the contract? Um, and good luck with that last one uh, in terms of what specification might be in a contract for a door installation, uh, you know, the, the exactness. Hey, a door expert. <laughs> All right. Um, a door is a door. A door is a door. Unless it's uh, not, which judge... <laughs> Judge uh, uh, Justice McLaren told a dad joke. Right. When is a door not a door? When it's a jar. Thanks, Justice. That was Thanks. 
that was very very uh, very helpful to the to the argument yeah. uh, uh, th- those are among the questions the Illinois appellate court second district will address when it decides Walker versus quality craft Inc that was recently argued following a bench trial in which the trial court found for the plaintiff and against the general contractor and the owner the defendants appealed a jury sat during the trial they decided the breach of contract count and apparently came to different conclusions in some of the allegations than did the judge in the Consumer Fraud Act count. Pat, tell us about the oral arguments in this interesting case. So this is another bizarre situation where the judge, so let me back up here. Breach of contract is a claim that to which you were entitled to a jury because at common law, you got a jury for that. Yep. Common or consumer fraud, uh, which is a statutory cause of action, you are not entitled to a to a jury, so you get a judge. Now, oftentimes these kinds of situations, <clears throat> you will try them in a bifurcated fashion. You'll have the jury try the bench trial part of the case, and then you'll get rid of them, and then you'll do the part that the that the judge needs to hear, and you'll figure out a way to make that make some sense. Uh, that's not what happened here. No, the jury and the judge. <laughs> Heard the case in one phase, not two. And the jury said that certain acts that the court found were a breach of the Consumer Fraud Act weren't breaches of contract, which makes no sense. The The law generally is that something can be a breach of contract. It might be a Consumer Fraud Act claim. But it's very hard to conceive of a situation where something is not a breach of contract. And... Could be a could be a consumer fraud that just doesn't follow. Um, the, the law is is that not every breach of contract is a consumer fraud, but at least has to be a breach of contract usually. And apparently, there were some of these three things: the door, the gift cards, the endorsement on the check that were not found by the jury to have been a breach of contract. So Dan started with the first one, which was they endorsed the check. So. A dispute arises between the plaintiff and the contractor she hired on some damage to her home where there was an insurance company involved. And what happens in these situations is in order to expedite the payments and get the contractor paid, the power of the the, uh, contractor is given the authority to sign checks and deposit them to pay off the amount so that they can continue doing the work. Well, after the dispute arose, the check comes in and pursuant to the contract, they sign the check. And it was for like $50,000. Uh, and there's a dispute over whether that was the final payment or not. Uh, there may be a couple hundred bucks or a thousand dollars still owed. And they're like, nope, it's, it's, it's not the final payment. Uh, so she was angry about that. And that was apparently one of the items that the trial court found, uh, was a breach of the consumer fraud act. And I, the judges, the justice were just like, what now? The contract says they could do this right now. Maybe they shouldn't have done it, but it's like the jury found it as a breach of contract because the contract said they could do it. I'm not sure what, under what theory. Uh, you know, maybe it would be a, uh, you know, an unjust or a, uh, uh, I'm not sure what theory it would be. I was really struggling as I listened a, a to workmanship this. type theory or something along those lines, if they did bad work, but that's nothing to do. I mean, just very strange. But they so then you have this cash a check. Yeah. Then you have the gift card situation. <laughs> so there's this claim that doesn't get pled. It, it isn't, it, 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 it doesn't get pled, and, and one of the ju- Justice McLaren says, hold it now. The maxim is, is that pleadings without proof are as bad as proof without pleadings. And 
you don't have any pleading here. And the response was, well, they didn't raise it in the trial court. It's waived. It's not a bad, not a bad response. That might win. Yeah. But I, I'm not so sure because you still have to have the pleading. And apparently this didn't come up until the oral or until, until closing argument, essentially. And then the question was, well, what evidence do you have? Well, they, there's circumstantial evidence. So on the spreadsheet they sent the lady, it's got these gift cards. And the guy's like, I made a mistake. They didn't belong in there. We didn't pay anybody off. And then there was a waiver of the inspection. Now, there's nothing to link the gift cards to the inspection other than one happened and the other happened. The, the, the circumstantial evidence instruction in Illinois has an example of what is circumstantial evidence. Guy walks into a, a building, he's got an umbrella, and it's wet. You can presume, or you can, you can, you can presume that the, it's raining outside. Umbrella. This is a little bit far removed from that. Yep. There's some things here apparently or allegedly erroneously put on the thing and then no inspection. Well, that doesn't, that's a, that's a long way. Those two things are a long way from each other. I get that it's susceptible there's, to that interpretation. It's possible, but it, there's sure. a gap. There's a lot to be, a lot, yeah, a lot to, to, get to be filled in here. Exactly. And I, I don't, I'm not sure I see it, but we'll see. Uh, I think it was Justice Hutchinson that was pushing the circumstantial evidence the hardest. I, 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 so. I I'm not sure I... I understand her. I understand where she's going. I'm just not sure that's a, this bit of evidence is enough. I don't know. Um, and then we have this door. There was I, really unclear what happened with this door, but they had an expert on doors and whether the, you know, there was this big fight over what seems to be really. I mean, you people are spending a lot of money on this. Um, a very, very strange situation. Um, I, I imagine the court is not is going to take a look at how to judge comes to a conclusion on things that the jury rejected and doesn't the jury's verdict take primacy? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know, but I don't understand how you could have a consumer fraud act claim to, to go back to where we began. I don't know how you could have a consumer fraud act claim when there was no breach of contract. That just doesn't, that just doesn't follow for me. Um, so this will be, this is a set, another second district case. So we'll, we won't have to wait long, I imagine to get this answered. No. Uh, but it, I, I'm looking forward to this one. Anything else to say on Walker, Dan? Like like I said when I introduced this, I mean, uh, I, I do a lot of contracts for various services and statements of work or things that we, the contracts just don't have a specificity, like what what's an adequate door insulation. I've never, I can't imagine that it would be so specific, right? You know, it's it's you know one eighth of an inch off the ground and that you know lips with the you know door jam. I mean, so. Good luck with that claim yeah. to say, does it match the contract? Probably not. It's price says install doors in a workmanlike fashion, using industry best practices or whatever, you know, some kind of generic language because, you, you know, nobody would, would spend a thousand hours trying to get down to exactly what this, you know, it's not the last supper being painted. So that's, that's right. All right, Dan. So that brings us to our COVID uh, BI update. We kind of had one earlier today. Uh, why yep. don't you fill us in on these other uh, three other matters that were decided around the country on this topic? Sure. The, the Second Circuit, uh, first of all, weighed in again with the case Deer Mountain Inn LLC versus Union Insurance Company and the, and consistent with their past holdings in uh, 10012 Holdings, Inc. They found again that loss of use under New York law from governmental orders does not equal direct physical loss, and that was a summary order that was issued uh, for the insurer. 
uh, in a federal court case, and I'm not clear wh where it's from. I don't have access to Law 360. Maybe you know, Pat, but there's a case, Health Partners versus Zurich. And what they said was, quote, Health Partners has not plausibly alleged that something about its covered property has fundamentally changed in a way that cannot be undone. Judge Nelson wrote in her 20-page ruling, rather, as Health Partners concedes, despite the alleged presence of COVID-19, its facilities continue to administer care to tens of thousands of patients, end quote. And then uh, the Sixth Circuit continues to pump out decisions. Um, a lot of those are, because it includes Ohio, uh, that the seat is in Cincinnati. It covers a lot of Cincinnati insurance company uh, cases and two more uh, victories for Cincinnati uh, last week in the Sixth Circuit, which is, I think they've now issued eight or 10, or I'm losing track of how many. They're really- Lots. Lots are coming out and- uh, um, you know, it's funny because uh, for, for a long time, Pat, we, we would see uh, a lot of splash on LinkedIn and in other formats uh, of when these arguments were taking place in the in the appellate courts. Not so much anymore because there's so many that are in the pipeline that, that are consistently being upheld that, you know, it's, it's not an event like it was. The, the, uh, the action has moved to the states. It has. And so when, when Iowa and Vermont and Massachusetts and Ohio have their arguments. That's where the action is, yep. and that's where ultimately what's going to be. That's ultimately going to decide where the, where this goes. Like we've said yep. before. Yep. Which brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong for this week, Dan. Um, what do you think is going to happen in the? Um, pardon me. In the first case, we discussed Alley sixty four versus Society Insurance. I think it gets reversed because, again, it, it, there's no, it doesn't seem to be a record of how it got certified. Well, not only that, I, I, are they going to enter judgment in favor of the insurer and say, are they going to go as far as the insurer wanted? Are they just going to reverse the class certification issue? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, honestly. I, 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 uh, I, I think they're just going to reverse it all together and say this just isn't covered. They, um, they, they may. They, 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 they take the invitation under Rule 366 and say, that, no, there's nothing here um, yep. because this wasn't a contamination. This wasn't contamination at your premises. You haven't even pled it, much less that even if it were there, that it would matter. Yep. Um, I, I, think it's I think you're probably, it's probably a good, good uh, analysis. So then we come to Shooty versus Psyox Health. Uh, we were talking at one of the breaks uh, I think it's a state in federal court. I think it's state in federal court. Yeah, I, I can't see them saying it's going going back to state court. No. And then Walker versus quality uh, construction. Uh, this is getting reversed in some dimension. It, th yeah. This this verdict by the judge, I don't the trial judge just can't stand. No, it, it I, doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure which parts are going to get reversed. I don't think about the door, but that check deal. And the uh, and the uh, yeah. gift card deal is get is is getting at least get in reversed. part it's getting reversed. Yeah, exactly. One of those. Yeah. All right. Which brings us to our two decisions that came down this week. Uh, we're two and zero oh this week. Dan is 111, 18 and seven. I am one hundred and nine, twenty and seven. Uh, Dan, do you want to tell us about Houston versus Hoare? H O E R R. Sure. So this was a case where the plaintiff, Dave Houston. As independent administrator of his deceased son's estate filed a two-count negligence complaint against the defendant Hoare, which was a general contractor of the construction site where the decedent suffered his injuries. And then 
PGH, the uh, defendant, filed a third-party complaint for contribution against Jeremy's employer, SNS Construction Services, Inc. Uh, both parties filed motions for summary judgment um, after finding that Houston could not prove the proximate cause of Jer Jeremy's accident. The court, uh, circuit court granted summary judgment for PGH and dismissed PGH's third-party complaint for contribution as moot. Uh, on appeal, Houston argued that the circuit court erred when it granted summary judgment in favor of uh, the defendant, and PGH did not retain control over the construction site, and the appellate court affirmed. Um, so, it, it it's just illustrates that if you don't, if no one knows how the accident happened, the plaintiff can't win. Essentially, is what it says. The plaintiff has to be able to show some evidence as to how the accident happened, and the plaintiff couldn't do that. It it, it just couldn't. Uh, which brings us to a uh, second district case, Medline versus Illinois Union. This is the ethylene oxide case uh, where the, co the court held in a very detailed opinion that Medline was not entitled to coverage uh, for the emissions going back to 1994, even though they only bought the property in 2008. And that was the retroactive date. And Let's just say I don't think we've heard the end of this case. No. They're going to try to go sue the broker, I imagine. Uh, they're going to go try to sue the lawyers that advise them on this. And whether the statute is long since run on those claims, I have to think it will have. But th there, may have been there may have been tolling uh, agreements there to prevent that. But I, I have to think that those statutes long ran by the time they were aware that suits were being brought. Because what they tried to argue is we can't be liable for things that happened before 2008. And the court said, it doesn't matter if you could be liable. You're alleged right. to have been, and right. it's not covered. Right. But then the, you know, they didn't address the, uh, you know, some of these might've been, some of these might've been triggered. And so usually in for one in for all in for all. And the court said no to that either. Right. Uh, so a very sweeping opinion uh, and, and, and very favorable to the insurer uh, in, in that case. So uh, and I, th I, I think the action against a broker is going to be tough here, too, because there was an oral argument, as we discussed when we covered this case, there was questions about the cost and, the, you know, the awareness of, you know, if you open a full retro, anybody that's ever bought a retro policy, you know, if you go all the way back to you know, the beginning of time, it's, it's a hell of a lot more expensive, whether, whether or not the insurer would even offer, you know, that kind of unlimited uncapped type of record. The other thing is the statute of limitations would have long since is run, but right. they, they, there we are. So that brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. And since this is going to be in your column this week, why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Sure. And this is about uh, Supreme Court of the United States circuit assignments. Uh, currently Supreme Court justices are assigned to circuits as a, as an aside. And I think I wrote about it in the column, but uh, they're named circuits because that's what, used to happen the uh, the justices would go ride circuits they were the circuit they, they were, were the, the circuit, circuit just they were the circuit judges right two of them with one district court judge they'd go around on horseback and uh, people like John Rutledge when he was an associate uh, justice he had uh, 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 gout or something and so he never really did anything in his year that he was on the court but in any event uh, with emergency motions and certain petitions these days, as we've seen, uh, Amy Coney Barrett had one with Indiana University during the uh, uh, escalation of, of uh, COVID-19 and whether they had to get tested or wear masks. 
Uh, but in any event, the assigned circuit justice can address the matter, or if he or she determines it's appropriate for the full court, we'll refer it to the Supreme Court for full deliberation. Uh, usually, the responsible justice issues, uh, if they deny it uh, or, or act, uh, they're not challenged. Uh, however, recently, Justice Gorsuch did receive an unusual appeal, and it's involved in October 2021. Justice Sotomayor reje rejected a request from some New York City teachers that were challenging the city and state's vaccine mandate for public school employees after a federal district court uh, judge denied their challenge. Sotomayor likely made that decision in part on a similar rejection by the uh, decision I mentioned of Justice Barrett that involved Indiana students and vaccine mandates. Um, and the circuit uh, justice responsible for these opinions often does not provide basis for the rejection. It's just a, uh, summarily dismissed or rejected. In this case, the New York teachers were not satisfied, so they renewed the request and appealed to Justice Gorsuch who had written some dissents, including the fiery eight-pager in a main case, writing that those lacking a religious exemption are now being fired and their practices shuttered, all for adhering to their constitutionally protected religious beliefs. Their plight is worthy of our attention. Uh, in this case, it worked, and Gorsuch referred the case to the entire Supreme Court. And so it'll be uh, decided, and, and uh, there'll, there'll be uh, subsequent action taken. What's interesting, Pat, is that Supreme Court Rule 22.4 uh, provides a justice denying an application will note the denial thereon. Thereafter, unless action thereon is restricted by law to the circuit justice or is untimely under Rule 30.2, the party making an application, except in the case of an application for an extension of time, may renew it to any other justice subject to the provisions of this rule, except when the denial is without prejudice a renewed application is not favored. Renewed application is made by a letter to the clerk, and then it goes on about how the process works. And if anybody reads the Supreme Court rules, uh, they're really subdued. So, so when it says that something's not favored, that's kind of fighting words for uh, the Supreme Court and their rules, because it's a very genteel, very you know, this is a, court, a very uh, cultured court, right? That has you know, uh, gets along the nine of them, and so. An interesting matter. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's kind of moot at this point because we've moved beyond COVID-19, it seems, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but in any event, an interesting kind of uh, uh, unusual exception to this rule that exists in the Supreme Court rules. Outstanding. Well, thank you for that insight. Uh, and with that, that brings us to the end of the show for this week. Everybody has a great week and look forward to seeing you next week on the Podium and Panel podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. 
The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firm's for which they work or their clients.